0: Hey, I'm so glad that you're back. This is Luis Avila, founder of Iconico, community organizer, seafood aficionado, and now a podcaster. We've all had to try new things during this pandemic. And I'm trying this one, a podcast to highlight the work of changemakers in the US and around the world. In the last episode, Marisa Franco spoke about the science behind networking and how cool it be to learn more about how it actually works, how people do it well, and what we can learn from them. This made me think about how much I rely on relationships in my work. After all, organizers build trust with people so that we can take collective action. It's all about relationships and how well we are networked. So this show is just that, an opportunity to catch up with intelligent and committed people during interesting work or asking them big questions to make meaning of, of the world and what's happening, and maybe inspire us to dig into new ideas, organizations, or even new joys. In the early 2000s, an organizer named Gaspar invited me to translate a meeting with cafeteria workers. He was a labor organizer, having one-on-one meetings mostly with immigrants from Mexico that worked in my campus cafeteria. He saw something in us that many of us didn't see ourselves, a value we could bring to the movement he was building. It was organized labor. He was organizing an effort with workers so that they could see the power of their labor, I mean their work, to demand better wages and benefits. This work happens all across the country, every day. Organizers talking to workers about their power, and so much of the organizer we've actually historically done has been informed by labor unions. So in this new world of gig economies and social bubbles and concentration of wealth, what is the role of unions? Are they thriving? Are they wielding power? This is a conversation with the director of political action of the largest healthcare union in the country in the times of a pandemic.
1: ICONICO EXCHANGE is an effort to discuss how changemakers approach their work. ICONICO EXCHANGE We talk about campaigns, places of tension, and joy in our movements, and get inspired by organizers and activists all around the world. ICONICO EXCHANGE
0: SEIU 1199 is the largest healthcare union in the U.S., representing over 500,000 workers in five states. They represent caregivers in hospitals, nursing homes, folks providing home care, and many others. Dr. Martin Luther King once called 1199 the authentic conscious of the labor movement, as they've pioneered efforts to tackle racial justice since its inception. It represents predominantly black and brown workers from Florida to New York. In this episode, we're having a conversation with Gabby C. SEIU 1199's Director of Political Action, who's worked in the last few years to assess and strengthen the union's political department, including the modernizing of the organizing program and a hyper-focus of leadership development.
1: labor union. And my job is to organize the organized to organize and organize. And essentially, you know, I'm working with our members to build their social, political, and economic power to live their self-determined lives and really trying to build a home for our members to see their dreams best expressed. You know, typically we think of labor unions as organizations that fight for workplace uh, you know, benefits for workers, which we are. But, you know, to me, 1199 is so much more than that. It's so much more than just a labor union that fights for good wages and good benefits. It's really a, a social justice organization, a political and social justice home for so many of our members. And so my job is to organize our members, to organize um, their communities and their families to live uh, the lives that they want to be able to live.
0: For Gabby, the job is about bringing people together so that their united power can shape the lives they want to live, which it's easy to say, but what's the power of organized labor? Nowadays, with a pandemic hitting healthcare workers so hard, I wonder what was the role of unions through the fight against COVID-19, and especially in the protection of workers.
1: All organizing is about, you know, transferring one power from one entity to another. And what unions wanna do is transfer power from bosses, you know, owners, whether they be hospital CEOs or CEOs of auto companies. It's all about transferring some of the power away from owners who have who have the ability to make all the decisions and call all the shots that deeply impact millions of people across our country It involving and including the workers in the decision making and ensuring that a person who has a job, particularly a person who has a full-time job, has the benefits and the respect in the workplace to be able to do their jobs well. And so that's critically important with healthcare workers, right? That they have to have all the tools and the support to be able to do their jobs well because actual lives are on the line. And that was no clear during this this pandemic that we experienced. There is a clear correlation Between protecting workers and ensuring that they have the equipment, the pay, the time off, the protections in the workplace to the type of care that they can provide. If we just look at nursing homes across the country, and you know that this coronavirus really breeds in nursing homes uh, and in correctional facilities and places where people don't have a lot of space to move around. And in New York state, you know, we've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of people fly in nursing homes from, from COVID-19. And uh, we can't say, it, it could have been entirely prevented. Um, but what we do know is that if workers had the proper protective equipment from the beginning, if all workers had an N95 mask and had a facial shield and had a proper gown, that they could have contained the spread a little bit more. And so, you know, without a union, it was just individual workers fighting and demanding that they have just simple protections. And with the union, it was everyone all together. There was an institution behind pushing. We, you know, we pushed really hard, particularly in nursing homes for folks, not only to receive the protective equipment that they need, but also to receive some additional pay because they were putting their lives on the line, not just their lives, but their families' lives because they were going to work sometimes without the proper PPE. They had the ability to bring the virus home to their family. And so, um... A moment like this makes so crystal clear why a union is necessary because we were able to hold employers accountable and really demand that our members were protected. Because when they are protected, they can provide better care. Whether they are a maintenance worker in a hospital, or uh, if they're an RN or registered nurse, or if they worked in a the pharmacy, they were all essential and all uh, deserved to to be compensated as that and protected.
0: In some ways, it seems like the coronavirus accelerated trends that were moving in society already at what seemed to be a slower rate. Companies in all sectors are replacing workers with efficient technologies and moving millions of working-class families to lower-wage jobs. Over one-third of workers are now part of the gig economy, and they are employed as contractors without benefits and absorbing most of the risk in their workplaces. So workers seem to be on their own. So with this in mind, I asked Gabby if unions were losing the battle.
1: You know, I think I take exception to the framing of this question, Luis, because it's like saying, you know, are Black and Brown people losing power in the United States? Right? It's it's, it's much more complex than that because it's not about someone losing some someone or entity losing something, right? Because you fight every day for justice. The the better question is is every does every worker have access to a union? And do they have access free from intimidation from their bosses and from their employers? And that answer is overwhelmingly no in the United States, both because laws, both at the at the federal, state, and local level, make it harder for workers to organize, but also because of what you said, the changing economy that um, there are so many companies, whether it be Uber or Lyft or you know any company where you are able to hire someone who is an independent contractor, that is a new method of work here in in our country and across the and across the world, and so it's it's not that unions are losing ground entirely is that the game has completely changed. Um, And institutions, whether they are labor unions or universities or local or governments, they find it difficult to adjust to the times. Um, And so there are there are lots of things that we've seen to point to the strength of organized labor. For instance, there was a Supreme Court decision that said that public sector workers um, do not automatically have to join a union. So right now, if you go work for the city of New York you are going to automatically be a part of a labor union once you get that job because that union has negotiated with the city of New York that all the workers who have your specific job title are part of the union. What Janice said is that you can go through all the rigmarole of organizing and getting a union contract, but each individual worker can decide if they pay dues or not, and the union is still obligated to represent them. Right? So say, Louise, you got the job in the city of New York and uh, you decide that you don't want to pay union dues, but you're still part of the union because that is the contract that has been negotiated. And anybody who has their job title is in the union. And so uh, you can decide not to pay dues, but you're still going to benefit from the union negotiating you a better Pay grade, you're going to benefit from the union negotiating you your health benefits. You're going to you're going to benefit from the union um, determining what hours, what holidays you have, and so there were decisions like that that just disincentivize and try to disincentivize people being a part of unions. But what we saw after Janice is that the union, union public sector unions grew across the board, that people made the decision to join unions. And what I think the right wing expected to see was, um, you know, public sector unions be completely decimated by these decisions, but they weren't, they were in fact strengthened because people and workers in particular, understood the power of being in a union and how it contributed to their, to their livelihood. And so that was a very long answer to the question is are we losing ground? We're not losing ground, the ground is just changing beneath us every single day and it's hard for institutions to keep up.
0: As Gabby said, the world is changing and institutions have to adapt. One of the trends that unions have had to adapt to is who their members are and how the union is connected to the issues they care about. Unions are not only about wages and benefits, but they're about social justice. So how do they deal with the changing demographics of a country that is demanding similar issues from different places in their experience? How do they make meaning and push a conversation about class and race at the same
1: time? I mean, the most labor unions, I won't say all, but if you look at the role that labor has traditionally played in the civil rights movement. It was a huge role. The AFL, CIO, and that iteration and and the UAW were some of the main sponsors of them on the march on Washington. And so it, in some situations, you know, labor unions have always worked to be at the center of social justice. That's true even more so for organizations like 1199 or United Farm Workers that were started as civil rights organizations that did labor stuff too, right? Um, And so we see that there are some other industries that might not be as diverse or started off with those social justice movements, but we are seeing labor unions across uh, the country really struggle with how they exist in a diversifying America and how they Uh, Talk about the historic ways in which people of color were left out of labor unions. I mean, if we look at places in the Midwest where a lot of black people moved during the Great Migration to be able to work in factories unions categorically kept them out because uh, they saw it as a threat to their jobs, that there were these black workers that could undercut their union workforce and work for less wages. And so there were entire efforts to keep black and brown people or or even women or immigrants out of unions. And the unions that we see losing members and the unions that we see losing influence are the unions that have not adapted to the changing realities of the world. And furthermore, Unions that are dying are the ones that are putting their heads in the sand and planting themselves in very old ways of thinking about how unions should exist. I'll give you one example. The most hotly debated thing that's happening right now is healthcare, healthcare reform. What's the best pathway for Is it Medicare for All? Is it single payer? Is it, you know, Medicare for all a little bit, but you can still keep your private insurance. That's playing out in New York state where I live right now, where, uh, there has been a bill to, to make, uh, New York, a single payer healthcare state for decades. And the folks that have traditionally stopped in our labor unions, because they felt like they would lose a bargaining chip at the table. They felt like if we took away healthcare, that that would threaten their very livelihood. We saw that play out in the presidential debates as well. Right. But the reality of what coronavirus has taught us is that our 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 healthcare system is so deeply flawed that if you are not talking about reform and change, if you are not talking about how to make sure more Americans, not just your union members, but more Americans have access to adequate health care, you are standing in the way of progress. And those lessons aren't those lessons are learned hard. And they also aren't forgotten. And so I think that a lot of labor unions have a lot of work to do to think about the future and how do you protect what you have have. And it's stuff that people have fought hard for, you know, we've had contracts go out for years over healthcare where bosses just did not want to, and employers just did not want to budge on what they were willing to offer. And so you're negotiating for years at a time. And so you can understand how someone doesn't want to give that up, but the times make it necessary that folks get uncomfortable with how things have always been and really talk about how we build power for workers across the board, whether they are in your particular union or not.
0: Black and brown communities over index in COVID-19 infections. Native Americans are some of the most impacted, and black communities in particular almost double the percentage of infections compared to white populations. At the time of the interview with Gabby, 1199 was working on putting pressure in Congress to support working class families by freezing evictions, ensuring healthcare workers that their work is essential to society and that they should be compensated hazard pay for the risks they were taking. As we know, to this date, Congress continues to drag their feet in more radical solutions to the problems impacting working class families during the pandemic. So, when I asked her what else we could do, she said this
1: The other thing that you can do uh, to support unions is to ensure that we have a president um, that uh, respects. Labor that respects workers, that respects hard work, that will reorient our economy to benefit those who work in it and not the the ones who own it. Um, and so we need to elect Joe Biden president. And that's another way that folks can support labor unions, because if we have a, a president in the White House, that helps labor unions Um, It helps our members. Um, And then it can change the dynamics of what we're seeing in the Department of Labor. When you're a labor union and you have Donald Trump as the president and and leading an extremely anti-union Department of Labor, Things as simple as ensuring that uh, workers are able to wear their union lanyards are things that this Labor Relations Board is ruling against and saying that, um, you know, you can't talk about being in a union if you're in a union inside the workplace. They're allowing employers to intimidate workers that are trying to form a union every single day. And so uh, changing your president and, and, and making Joe Biden our president will also make it easier for workers to have the representation they need.
0: This election, as all other elections, are a contest for power. In the last four years, we have seen an administration that is weakening some of the most critical institutions in this country. Now, things won't get fixed by electing a new president, and this is why unions are important, because they contend with power beyond elections, so the work doesn't end in November and conversations can continue. We won't cover all of it in this show. We wanted to ask Gabby, what would she like to talk more about in the process of building real power with working class families?
1: We should talk more about what workers really look like. And when we talk about the working class, what we mean. So oftentimes, particularly in our national politics, when we we think about working class and when we think about union members, we think about mine workers or auto workers or like, you know, big, tough white guys that are doing really hard work. But if you look at the reality of who workers are, who is supporting our economy, they're people, they're largely people of color, that's largely women, they're largely immigrants, either first or second generation, or even recent immigrants. And so one of the things I think we don't talk about enough it's what the working class truly looks like. And I think this coronavirus, this pandemic has showed who those essential workers are and how, how at risk they are, because we've seen the infection rates among immigrants and people of color and Native Americans just be a skyrocket past their white counterparts. Um, and so I think we need to have a real conversation about who workers are and who we wanna protect here. That comes with some risk, right, too. Um, Cause we saw Americans generally stop caring about coronavirus when the data starts to show it's mostly black and brown people who were being impacted by it. So there are some risks in that, but we need people to think more broadly about who the working class is and who is deserving of unions because the, the union members i represent are folks who make minimum wage or just above it. And they care for patients in their homes and in institutions like nursing homes. And they are working two and three jobs to be able to to make it every single day through work. Um, and we don't hear those stories enough.
0: Lastly, I wanted to know what Gabby was reading, watching or listening that could give us a window to what she's thinking or helping her make meaning of this moment. And she recommended this.
1: So I'm reading a book called The Vanishing Calf or The Vanishing Act. Have you heard of this book? No. It is it is such a good book. I can't tell you too much without it's called The Vanishing Half. It's written by um, a Black woman. I think she's number one on the bestseller list now, Brit Bennett. Um, it is this novel about two twins um, that are Black but very, very, very fair-skinned and how one chooses to pass for white and the other one goes the opposite direction and it tells their lives. And I love the, the kind of books that that tells stories over generations and over the course of time. And it's like that. And so um, that was my vacation read. And as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to go finish up that book that was really, really good and well-written. And I try to read Black women authors almost exclusively. So this was a a really good treat. Um, And everyone should go read it.
0: Pick up Rick Bennett's The Vanishing Half. And while you're at it, check out Conquering Goliath, A History of How Cesar Chavez Started the United Farm Workers Union. I like this book because it shows him as a young organizer who makes mistakes and constantly has to face internal tensions in the union. To learn more about SEIU 1199, visit 1199SEIU.org. My appreciation to Grecia Beltrán, who helped produce this show, Francisco Flores, who did the audio and mixing, to Fuerte Network for their support with distribution, to Monica Nowakowski and Jacob Acuña from the Iconico team from helping with promotion, Carla Chavarria for the graphics, and to you for making it this far. Next week, we'll be discussing the tensions of creating black and brown alliances. While everybody talks about black and brown coalitions, doing this work is harder than it sounds, but it's being done everywhere, creating spaces of joy and learning. Check out the next episode of Iconico Exchange and visit iconico.io to sign up for emails. We share cool campaign tools, jobs, and training opportunities. You can also find us on facebook.com slash iconico campaigns. The music is by Barrio Lindo, and the episode was edited and written by me, Luis Avila. Have a good week and don't forget you're powerful, more so when you're with others. What did you have for breakfast this morning?
1: Well, I was up in the Catskills, and we went to an old country store for breakfast, uh, which also had like cows. And then I saw a peacock. I've never saw seen a peacock in real life that was like completely flared. And I had eggs over medium, and I had a corned beef hash, and I had a side of um, blueberry pancakes. And I ate like half of all of that, so it wasn't as big as it sounds, but it was good.
0: The views and opinions expressed by the guests and hosts of Iconico Exchange are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Iconico or the Fuerte Network.